you want to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. For over 40 years, Josh McDowell has been a popular speaker and writer for college and young adults. And because of the age and the interests of most of those in his audience, which is one of the topics he's frequently asked to speak on deals with marriage and relationships. In a book he wrote several years back titled The Secret of Loving, he wrote, writes, some of us get downright particular about the person who supposedly will make us happy. At a singles conference in Portland, Oregon, a woman clearly in her late 20s approached me and said, Mr. McDowell, let me show you the type of man I want to marry. With a flourish, she unfolded a list of 49 traits she was looking for in a man. He scanned her list and he said, Lady, you don't want a husband, you want Jesus. (laughs) We can spend far too much time and energy fighting and fuming over what we want someone else to be like or how we want them to act or how we want them to change while we ignore how to become the type of person they need us to be. The only person any of us can ever change is ourselves. And to build a solid foundation for any relationship, we have to work on ourselves, not someone else. McDowell goes on to point out that it's not only women who develop lists of what they're looking for. He then writes, at the University of Washington, a sophomore approached me, whipped out his diary, and said, let me show you the type of woman I want to marry. Of the 14 qualities on his list, I can recall only faithfulness and trustworthiness. And then McDowell asked this young man, how do you score on those 14 points? It's not so much, he said, finding the right person, but being the right person that counts in marriage. If you want a queen, you have to be a king. If you want a good lover, you have to be a good lover. Discovering the secret of loving, he says, is much like looking for glasses only to find them perched on your head. Or looking for, for your key ring and discovering it in your hand. Most of us search and search for the right person when all the while the key is being the right person. So many are out looking when they ought to be working on becoming the right kind of person. In Ephesians, Paul had spent a chapter and a half talking about the importance of living in a way that's consistent with being a follower of Christ. In chapter 4, he writes, that type of person we are to be is one who lives life worthy of our calling, which he describes in terms of unity, ministry, and holiness. If we're not in fellowship with Christ in his body, not active, using his gifts and talents that God gave us for this purpose in ministry, if we're not becoming more holy, then something is wrong. We're not becoming the type of person God intends for us to be. In chapter 5, he says, we become the type of person God calls us to be by imitating him, by becoming imitators of God, it says, as his dearly loved children. What the Lord wants us to imitate, he then says, is his love as expressed in Christ who gave himself for us, his light as we live in such a way that it becomes obvious that God is in our lives, and his wisdom by living out what we believe in practical ways. In imitating 
our Lord, we become, or we are building lives on God's nature, becoming like him, which really is what the term Christian means, to become Christ-like. So what are we becoming? Now in chapter 5, he turns his attention to relationships, mentioning three as he brings the gospel to bear on marriage, family, and work. Each is to be a reflection of our relationship with God. How we relate to others is to mirror how we relate to our Savior. And it all starts with a verse that's often ignored in all the discussion nowadays about women's roles. Because Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is foundational. Paul also says, though, that is evidence of a spirit-filled life. In verse 18, Paul had said, Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then to describe that filling, what it looks like, he then uses a series of participles to describe the Spirit-filled life. He says, By speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, our words and our discussion are to reflect our faith being filled not with criticizing and complaining and comparing, but with praise for God, what he has done, as opposed to the foolish and obscene talk he had mentioned right before that. He also says the spirit-filled life is by singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Joy describes our attitude of a spirit-filled life. In Galatians 5.22, it's listed among the fruit or the evidences of the Spirit. The next participle he uses to describe a spirit-filled life is always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfulness to God for what he's given describes it. And then in verse 21, he says, submit to one another. Structurally, grammatically, verse 21 is connected to verse 18. It's one of the descriptives of a spirit-filled life. And then what follows in verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 5, are an elaboration of how it plays out in everyday life in our relationships with others. Submit to one another, he says, out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission, it's calling for there. That's the framework for what follows. There's no sense of superiority or inferiority in submission here, or authority and dominance, though that's the way it's often understood. One source defined it as a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden as submission. As it's used here, submission means the voluntary setting aside of our own desires for someone else. And in a society like ancient Ephesus or even America today, where people's main concerns often are seeking their own pleasure, fulfilling their own desires, where there's huge profits to be made by catering to human desire and selfishness, submission, voluntarily setting aside your desire for the sake of someone else, is a radical notion because it's a call for self-denial. Perhaps the best example of what that means or what it looks like comes from Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's praying there, those last few moments before his arrest and crucifixion, he prays to the Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. 
He wanted to live. He was human. As a man, he did not want to go through the pain and the suffering of the crucifixion. His desire, his wish to was go on, to go on living, but he prayed nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He set that desire he had aside for the sake of us. That's the picture of submission. He could have called out legions of angels to protect him, he said, but he didn't. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul said, have this same attitude in your own lives that was in Jesus Christ, who didn't look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You might be able to get your own way. You might be stronger and able to force someone else to do your wishes. You might be smarter and be able to talk the other person to see things your way. You might be able to manipulate the other to do things the way you want. But submission says, I won't do that. It respects them for their good and their benefit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the place that's most needed and difficult is in marriage. To become the type of person God wants and that your spouse needs you to be. Because Christianity really does begin in the home. It's purely voluntary, but it's essential to learn to do that, to build a strong relationship there. No one wants to be around someone who always insists that things have to be their way, who refuses to consider your feelings or needs. Any marriage built on a person demanding their way, constantly trying to change you, unwilling to set aside their desires, is heading for difficulty and pain. From that perspective... Mutual submission, Paul continues, Wives now, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. We get caught up sometimes in what we want that person to do for us, what we want them to be like. What do we need to be, though? In the home I grew up with, my parents tried to live a very unhealthy model of marriage. My father's role, as he saw it, was to be the primary breadwinner for the family so that he could pursue his own social life, had his circle of friends, while my mom raised the kids, cooked, cleaned, washed, worked a full-time job, fixed the washing machine when it broke down. She did what she thought was her duty while my dad concerned himself with providing for his family. The problem was, my dad was a salesman and could never make as much as my mother who worked in the aerospace industry as an engineer. It ate him up inside. It doesn't refer to a husband being the primary breadwinner, nor does it refer to a man's right to rule his home as his castle. That's what my parents tried. And so my father was an absentee father much of the time. And we were afraid of his temper. You know, there's an item of note here. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents. Then it says, Servants, obey your masters. Wives, it says, Submit to your husband. Obedience carries a sense of obligation. Submission is a choice. Paul is using a different words to say, Husband, don't treat your child or your wife the same way as you would a child or a servant. 
In his commentary on this passage, John MacArthur says, it's not subservience or servility, but a willingly functioning under the husband's leadership. Speaking of roles, position, not dominance or power. For mutual submission, as it set the stage in verse 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But husbands are also, just told prior to this, submit to your wife out of reverence for Christ. It's bounded by a relationship with God. Submit to one another. Let your relationship mirror your relationship with Christ to become the type of person he wants you to be. It shouldn't be that shocking of a statement. This idea of submission is a hard one for us. But in Romans, Titus, and 1 Peter, it says, citizens, you are to submit to those in authority. In 1 Corinthians, it says, as members of of the body of Christ, we are to submit to those who have been given positions of leadership. In Titus and 1 Peter, it uses the word servant and master, which we probably would translate more employee and employer, to say, employees, submit to your boss. Peter says, young men, submit to those who are your elders. Once again, the emphasis is on building foundations, becoming the type of people, and in specifically in this case, the type of husband or wife that God wants and your spouse needs. And if anything, the greater responsibility in this passage is on the husband than the wife, because he goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. In ancient Ephesus, in the ancient world in general, this self-giving, sacrificial nature of love was almost unheard of. Marriages were arranged for convenience and status and having children. Love really played no part in it. Now Paul says, husbands, love your Christ in the same way Christ loved his church, that he loves us. How did he love us? He went to the cross for us. He sacrificed himself. He worked for our good to raise us to a higher level, not to meet his needs. His love was expressed through being what we needed him to be, not what he wanted us to do for him. Every description in this passage that Paul makes of love is of mutual submission, putting others' needs and wishes ahead of our own. He gave of himself, it says. He put aside his desires, concern for our growth and welfare. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes one of the primary characteristics of true love, not as self-seeking, but it seeks not its own way. It says to make her holy, setting aside, setting that person apart from all others, fidelity, being washed and pure and radiant and blameless, treating 
the other as you wish to be treated, with godly love. Sociologists Evelyn Duvall and Reuben Hill wrote, when you come to marriage, what do you bring? A new wardrobe? A nest egg in the bank? Some furniture you've inherited? A dependent relative or two? A good job and a prospect for advancement? Whatever your tangible assets or liabilities are, there is something even more important. That is you personally, the way you act toward people and the attitudes you bring to marriage. The kind of marriage you make depends on the kind of person you are. The assumption underlying this is that we become the kind of person God wants, worthy of our calling by imitating Christ, so that the relationship with Christ is mirrored in our relationship with others. For this reason, Paul quotes Genesis, a man leaves his father and is united with his mother or his wife, and the two become one flesh, become blended, not demanding the person come to your side. Someone has said, it may be true that marriages are made in heaven, but they're lived here on earth between imperfect people. What we work on, though, is not what we want our spouse to be, but what we need to be. Again, in your life together, Elof Nelson writes, success in marriage is more than finding the right person. Being the right person is even more important. For I found that young people I counsel with are looking for the perfect mate without much being concerned about the person their mate is getting. Like one longtime marriage counselor said, there are only two things that cause unhappy marriages men and women. What are the qualities you want in your mate? Measure yourself against them first. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How many arguments and fights would that end? Consider what type of person we are and make that a focus, not what we want them to be for us. Imagine what would happen if we began to take Paul's word to heart, and instead of focusing on what we want that person to be or do or change, we start thinking about what kind of person do I need to be? What do I need to do? How do I need to change? Because through the whole passage, ultimately, Christ and his love becomes the example. The cross itself serves as the example and the symbol of the depths of his love of submission to God for our sake. He died, scripture says, so that you could be forgiven. He loved so much, he took your place. And then he invites you to experience his love for yourself. Do you know, as this begins a new year, that love for yourself? Have you experienced the self-giving nature of the love of a father for his, you, his child? We're going to sing in a moment our hymn of commitment and invitation. It's an invitation for that. If you, if you want to know the love of God, the love, how great the love the Father has for you, it's an invitation to respond. So as the worship team comes, I'm going to ask that we pray. Will you join me? Father, as we start off this new year, we pray that we will start off with an awareness, a greater awareness of how great your love is for us that we might become the type of people for which your love is modeled through us to the world around us. 
Help us to become that which you created us to be, God. A people holy and blameless, a people washed through your loving sacrifice. And Lord, in the midst of difficulties of life, which we all face, may we realize that even in the midst of those difficulties and disappointments, you are there and will not disappoint. That you are one we can lean on. We thank you, Lord, for this new year, for this day, that we can worship you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.